All right. Well, again, welcome. Great to uh, see you this morning. My name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC. And uh, if you have a Bible, I would uh, invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. And if you didn't bring a Bible, you uh, can find a blue Bible on the ground near you. Probably also have access on a uh, supercomputer in your pocket. We are um, continuing our series, The Seven Letters of Jesus. And uh, somebody asked me last week after the service and said I was, I was really confused because Jesus only has seven or only has five letters uh, in it. J E S U S is five letters. And um, this person was confused. So, just to be very clear about what, what's happening. Uh, in the book of Revelation is that on Sunday morning the Apostle John went to church in AD 96 and he had a vision of the risen Jesus and after describing what Jesus uh, how he appeared Jesus then told John to write down an ancient email and send it a letter to uh, a church and to these seven churches in Asia Minor which is in modern day Turkey and so we have been over the last, uh, what, six weeks or so looking at, at each of these, and uh, we will finish uh, with the seventh tomorrow, or next week, um, but that's what's going on. So this morning we're looking at the, uh, the letter to the church in Philadelphia, uh, not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, Asia Minor, and um, with that all kind of as background, uh, let me invite you to stand with me. If you're willing and able, and we're going to read God's word in Revelation 3, starting at verse 7. Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens, excuse me, who opens and no one will shut who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and I have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word of patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to, those, to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, <laughs> and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Oh God, we come to you um, with our hearts full of confusion. Uh, with sick kids, with uh, worries about uh, what you're doing in our lives and in our worlds. And God, I pray that 
you would take our cares upon you this morning and that you would give us your hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you seated, please? Oh, gosh. Okay. It's going to be okay. Um, I wonder if uh, you have ever had the experience of being displaced, of leaving home, of being uh, squeezed out of the place that uh, felt safe and comfortable and protective for you. Um, that may have been something as simple as going away to college and not knowing what the future would hold. For some of us, I'm sure uh, that looks more traumatic. Um, uh, being forced out of a home because of uh, uh, financial pressures um, or relationships that uh, didn't go the way that we hoped. Um, these experiences of being displaced uh, bring with them a sense of anxiety and uncertainty. <clears throat> I um, will never forget uh, the experience of moving Ashley and I. Um, We've been only married a year or so, but moved to Scotland, and those first couple weeks in a foreign culture where people apparently don't speak the same language um, was profoundly disorienting. And I still, uh, we, there's so many things in those first couple weeks that, where I still, like, I can catch a whiff of something and have this almost visceral, visceral reaction. Um, we, we were gonna move into this dank, dark basement flat, and we went in there and the cleaning crew, for the first time, the cleaning crew was still cleaning our apartment and they were smoking while they were doing that. And so if I ever catch the, uh, the scent of like cleaning products mingled with cigarette smoke, I, I might actually um, be sick. Um, it's, uh, it, it was a, it's a, very, a very anxious and uncertain place and time. Uh, of course, we've seen in, in uh, far more profound ways um, in recent years news of refugee crises in various parts of the world. And, and in some ways, I think it's, it's, it's foolish to kind of compare um, my experience, a lot of our experiences with, uh, you know, the experience of refugees who have been displaced from their country, forced out by, by persecution and famine and war. Uh, and yet... And yet, to one degree or another, all of us, members of the human race, experience uh, the, the um, we all know what this experience of displacement, of being forced out of our home, uh, feels like. Um, the story of the Bible, going back to the earliest chapters, is the story of God creating a good world and, a, and, and, and the human race and placing them in paradise, and yet instead of uh, living in this place that God created to be our home, we rebelled, uh, we sinned against God, and we were expelled from the Garden of Eden. And so in many ways, the, 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 ways the, the story of the rest of the Bible is the story of what God does to bring us back home and to sustain us until, until we get there. And so we all experience this, um, this reality of living in a world that is not the way that it should be. Not the, we live in a world that... that for one reason or another, at various times, does not feel like it's our home. And I think that maybe that's one of the particular ways that we experience the brokenness of humanity living in Orange County, because we have this kind of love-hate relationship with our physical homes. And I think a lot of it comes just because of the cost of living, but it's so expensive to live here that um, I, how many of us have experienced the 
uh, the kind of excitement of moving into a new home and saying, like, yes, this is going to be such a great place, only to discover um, a few short years later that our family has outgrown it. Um, and we can't afford the house that our family now needs to live in. Or um, the bathroom floods, or, you know, <laughs> whatever it is, just theoretically speaking. Uh, we have a flooded bathroom at the moment. Uh, we have a longing for home, and yet our experience so often is frustrating. And so that's one of the reasons why, as a church, that we have tried to, uh, one of the ways we talk about who we are and why we're here is to be a home, to be a safe place for people um, who are experiencing the brokenness of life, the brokenness of relationships, the financial stress uh, of, of just living in Orange County. Many of us have been away uh, from the church for a long time, and our hope is to be a safe place um, to just belong and to be and to reconnect with God and with his people as God brings us back home. The church in Philadelphia was a church that had been displaced. Uh, and and uh, one um, <coughs> pastor that I, uh, a pastor friend of mine, Mike Kanjian, I uh, heard him say that uh, the church in Philadelphia was twice displaced um, because the two things that we know about the church in Philadelphia uh, are, are this. The first thing we know, if you read anything about uh, the city of Philadelphia, is that it was uh, located in an area that had a lot of earthquake activity. Um, and it was built on this kind of crossroads, and so it's, one of these, it's like Barstow, California. You're like, why is there a city there? Well, because there's a crossroads there, and so there's going to be a city there. Um, but Philadelphia, I think, was a more attractive city than Barstow, and so the fact that uh, there were earthquakes there didn't dissuade people from living there. But in AD 70, the city had been leveled by an earthquake, and uh, whenever there was an earthquake, the inhabitants of the city would flee the city. And even, um, you know, what two generations later, there were still people who refused to, they, like they would go and work in the city and they would go out and sleep in the fields because they were afraid to live in their homes because you never knew when an earthquake was gonna hit. Or when an earthquake would hit, they would flee the city until the aftershocks subsided. And so natural disaster had forced uh, the inhabitants of Philadelphia outside of the city. But you also get this hint in this letter that, um, that there's something else going on and the earliest Christians um, were converts from Judaism. Uh, they, were, they were Jewish, uh, you know, ethnic Jews who had put their trust in Jesus as the Messiah. And um, uh, those Christians in Philadelphia, because of their faith in Jesus, had been kicked out of the Jewish synagogue. And so that meant not just that they couldn't go to worship, but, um, you know, that they had lost relationships, um, family members, friendships, uh, the, the social kind of network that allows life to flourish, they had lost all of that. So they were twice displaced. And so the church in Philadelphia knew what it was like to live in a city that was very familiar to them and yet didn't feel exactly like home. Um, it was not the way that it should have been. And Jesus speaks this message to this church, and this is why I'm getting so choked up. It's just because I think there's this... Um, just in the words of Jesus in this letter, there's this overwhelming sense of his gentle, tender compassion for this church. Jesus loves these people. Uh, of the, um, the seven letters that Jesus writes to these seven churches, 
This is one of the two where Jesus does not offer any critique. Um, and, and he's coming to this church and saying, I know that you're already suffering and you don't need correction. You need care. You need compassion. You need support. And as Jesus speaks these uh, words, um, he speaks to them in order to both comfort them in their displacement, but also to redeem their displacement. And therefore, I think that the letter to the church in Philadelphia is tremendously encouraging for Christians living in the 21st century, because we too live in a world where we know all too well that this world is not the way that it should be. And our home often does not feel like home. It doesn't feel safe. It does not feel the way that it should be. And so Jesus both comforts us in our homesickness and he redeems it. And so what I want to do this, this morning is look at three things in this passage that Jesus points out to us. Um, three ways in which, uh, how do we live faithfully in a world where we have been displaced? How do we live faithfully as Christians in a world that doesn't feel like home? And the first thing that we see in this passage is that Jesus gives us renewed vision. Jesus gives us a renewed vision. And this is important because... I, I, what, what is going to happen in our lives is, is one of two things. Either we will be gripped by a vision of God's glory that will kind of hold us and compel us and pull us into a future where we walk faithfully with Jesus, or we will be consumed by the day-to-day task of survival in a broken world. Those are, I know that's a bold statement, but that's, those are literally the two options. Uh, think about the experience of a, of a refugee, of an exile, why is it so hard, you know, if you take the most extreme example, to live um, as a refugee? It's not just because you're in a physically unfamiliar place. It's because you now live in a place where the day-to-day, like, normal business of life is incredibly difficult. Where do you find food and how do you pay for it? Uh, how do you communicate in a place where you don't speak the language and where the local customs don't make any sense to you? Um, just the exhaustion of feeling like an outsider all day long. When we moved to uh, Scotland, and, and again, I'm not in any way comparing that experience to being a refugee, but it did feel like living as like kind of an expatriate uh, for a while. And Ashley and I went into a bank to try to open a bank account. And um, we thought that that would be a really simple procedure we went into the bank and we said, basically, we have money, we would like to give it to you. And it's, that's how banks work in America, right? But in Scotland, they said, well, do you have any references? Like, references? I think, incidentally, this was the bank that Jason Reed worked for, but we didn't know Jason Reed at the time, the Royal Bank of Scotland. Um, references, like, what do you mean? Um, well, we, don't, we just moved here. We don't know anybody. Well, you've got references. You can't open a bank account. Well, do you have a, like, where do you work? Well, we don't have jobs. Like, we, we just moved here. Um, like, what do we do? Um, it's like something as simple as trying to open a bank account. It just works different in a different place. And a, a, a person who is exiled or refugee, that is their day-in, day-out experience of the stuff of everyday life, just normal existence. Um, consumes all that you have. But Jesus gives renewed vision to his people living in this world. Verses 11 and 12, he says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. 
The one, who, the, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. I think this is Jesus' way of saying to us, just hang in there because your future is going to be more beautiful than you can imagine. And if you are gripped and compelled by this vision of what your future will behold because of what Jesus is going to do for you and for his whole creation, it will sustain you in the difficulty of today. I love the image that Jesus uses here. Um, for the one who hangs on until the end, Jesus says, I will make you a pillar. And that could not be a starker contrast from the experience of a refugee, right? And I, I think he's talking, like, why do we use the phrase, like, so-and-so is a pillar in their community? Well, they have a name. They are rooted. They've been around for a long time. People look up to them. They stand tall. Everybody knows who you are. And that is a polar opposite experience of somebody who's been displaced from their home and is wandering, uh, you know, wherever circumstances will take them. And Jesus is saying, this is your future. Remain faithful until the end, and I will make you a pillar and I will give you a name. You will, uh, there will be no more going out, coming back in. You won't have to flee uh, you know, the natural disaster, the war, the famine. Um, you won't have to, to fear the place that you live. You'll be safe and secure, rooted and known. God will put his name on you. And because God has put his name on you, you will be somebody. That's, the, the, that's your future. So let that vision guide you in the present. Uh, we live in a culture that says that our highest good will be found in material comfort and success. And, uh, and so we believe that we'll finally be satisfied if we can just get like a little bit more. And I think as Christians in our time, we have we've bought that lie wholesale. And the tragedy of the church in America is that we actually believe that that is true. That a little bit more will satisfy us. If we could just get into, like, I literally believe if we could just get into a little bigger house, our life would be easier. And, like, it's not that it wouldn't, <laughs> but, like, I see everybody driving the new Teslas around. They're so cool. Like, I literally believe I would be content if I could drive a Tesla. <laughs> and I'm willing to give it a shot, <laughs> even though I know that it will only last for a couple of weeks. And Jesus comes to us, and I, I, this is why I love the gentleness of Jesus in this passage. He doesn't come to us and say, like, what is wrong with you materialistic, shallow people in Orange County? You suck. He doesn't say that. He says, I want to invite you to dream bigger dreams. Because the dreams that you're dreaming are far too tame. And I want to do way more beautiful things. And I'm going to do far grander things. And so you need to stop these dreams of thinking that granite countertops are going to solve your life. Because they're not. <laughs> your dreams are too tame, and I want to give you a glimpse of your future that will sustain you in the present. A glimpse of who you are in Christ. Um, a vision that will lift our sights beyond our daily pleasure and survival and enable us to endure in the present. A renewed vision. Um, just hang on a little bit longer. The second thing that Jesus uh, says in this passage is, um, I think this is really, 
Um, this is really beautiful. He says, your vindication is not in your own strength, but my work on your behalf. And I have to confess that I struggle with this on like a daily basis of, um, of feeling like nobody is paying attention to me, nobody sees me, and nobody cares. And life is hard, and why doesn't somebody just every once in a while say, you're doing a good job? Um, and we all live in this world where we are largely anonymous, and because we're largely anonymous, we're unseen and unknown. And so um, we often feel this sense of like, why doesn't anybody care? Why doesn't anybody see me? Why doesn't anybody care? Um, and so we wonder, don't we, where we can find meaning and recognition and purpose in life. And the church in Philadelphia, as I said, um, they, they, they were Christians who had been kicked out of the Jewish synagogue. And it's probably impossible for us um, in like a post-Holocaust world to understand what Jesus is really saying um, when he talks about the synagogue of Satan because he's not making like an anti-Semitic statement. But you have to understand a little bit of the, the background and the context of, of religion in the Roman Empire. Uh, the Roman Empire uh, was a brutal place where citizens, well, not just citizens, uh, hardly anybody was a citizen, but uh, those who lived in Rome were required to worship the emperor as God and the state. And so once a year or so, you had to go and kind of pay your tribute. You didn't really have to mean anything, but you had to go to the temple and you had to pay your tribute and say, Caesar is Lord, uh, and then you could go about the rest of your life. Uh, but if you didn't, you didn't have to mean it, but if you didn't, you, had to, you would face persecution. But the interesting thing is that the Jewish people have been granted an exception. And they had kind of been granted freedom of religion, you know, within certain limitations in the Roman Empire. And they weren't required to bow their knee to Caesar. And so uh, when Jesus, um, you know, begins to minister as a, as a Jewish Messiah, and the roots of Christianity are, are in Judaism, um, and then after Jesus' death and, and, and resurrection, it became uh, very, in a pragmatic way, very important for the church, for the early Christians, uh, to, um, to be viewed as a sect within the broader category of Judaism. Does that make sense? And yet over the first, you know, probably century and a half of Christianity, it becomes increasingly clear that, um, that, that Judaism and Christianity are going to part ways. And so in Philadelphia, the Christians, as we've seen, have been kicked out of the Jewish synagogue. And so what that means for them is they have not only lost their relationships and their social network uh, and their building and their place to worship, but they have also lost their protected status as religious minorities in the Roman Empire. And so they are now a persecuted religious group. And here's the thing. Like, nobody wants to suffer and nobody wants to endure hardship, but like, it's kind of okay if somebody sees it. And the hardest thing is suffering, and nobody cares. And nobody cares. And um, they are living now essentially as exiles in their own city, and they don't get credit, they don't get recognition, and nobody cares. And Jesus says, a day is coming where everyone will see that I love you. Not just that I love you, but everybody will see that I love you. 
Everybody will see that you weren't crazy, that you, uh, that you will be vindicated, and you will be vindicated not because you have defended yourself, but because you are loved by me, who is your vindication. This is incredibly practical because life in this world is hard, and if you follow Jesus faithfully in this life, at some point you will be misunderstood. And when you are misunderstood, uh, you will be tempted to defend yourself, to respond in anger. And Jesus is saying, I am your defender. In his life, Jesus is saying, I lived the perfect life, and I lived it in order to give you credit for it. So you don't need to defend yourself because you have a perfect life. Not yours, you have mine. <laughs> and then on his death, uh, on, on the cross, Jesus, Jesus paid the death, uh, the penalty for death that we deserve by dying on the cross. And then in his resurrection, Jesus breathes new life into you, sustaining for life as a sojourner in this world where you follow him. And so it becomes a life of adventure. And it's not easy, but it's a life uh, lived one day at a time. Um, it's a life of adventure. Jesus gives himself to you and for you. But here's what Jesus is saying. In the moment when you've been misunderstood and mistreated, I am your defense. You don't need to defend yourself. You don't need to lash out. You don't need to protect yourself because I love you. I love you. And one day everybody's going to see that I love you. This Thursday, I got a call from a, 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 well, I got off the plane in Atlanta, and there was a text from a friend of mine that said, I really need you to call me and pastor me this afternoon. And I called him, and I said, what's going on? And he, um, he, 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 he told me that, I, I knew a little bit of the story, but he said, you know that about a year ago, I left my job uh, because, and I don't really know the circumstances, but he, he felt like he was uh, working in a situation where, um, he was being mistreated by his boss, and he could no longer uh, survive there. And so he, he, he took a new job and moved you know, halfway across the country. And, and he called me on Thursday because he said he had just seen on Facebook that they had hired his replacement. And he said, I was just flooded with anger and bitterness. And I said, uh, I said um, are you tempted to hope that that guy fails too? Because then everybody will see that it wasn't your fault. And he said, yes. And he said, but I, I cannot live with this bitterness and this anger. Um, so what do I do? And I said, well, um, you know, how do I get, my, my, get past my anger and my bitterness? And I said, you know, you've got you've to pray for your enemies. And you've got to have somebody that you can begin to process you're hurt with. And then you've got to forgive. And I think the challenge of um, forgiveness in the world that we live in is we never say to anybody, I forgive you. We say it's okay. And forgiveness and saying it's okay is not the same thing because to forgive somebody is to say what you did to me is not okay. But I'm going to absorb, I'm going to pay the price for it instead of exacting it. And that's terribly difficult and painful. And the only way that you're going to do it is if you realize that you have received that treatment from Jesus, that you are loved. Because on the cross, um, as Jesus hung on the cross, 
you know, the soldiers and the passers-by taunted him and mocked him and said to him, if you really are the Son of God, then save yourself. And if you really are the Son of God, then call on the angel armies to save you. And Jesus didn't. And it's not because he couldn't. It's because he stood there refusing to vindicate himself in order to pay the penalty that we should have paid. Um, he could have defended himself, but instead he suffered to the point where God the Father turns his back on us, and this is the cost of love. Anyone who truly knows, uh, anybody who, who truly loves knows that, that loving somebody at some point will require suffering for them. If you don't know what that means, just ask the closest parents. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. We long to be seen, we long to be known, we long to be recognized. We long to be vindicated. And what Jesus says is, I love you and one day everybody's going to know it. Thirdly, the third thing, um, finally, to live faithfully in a world that's not totally our home, we've got to see that God weaves mission into our vulnerability. God weaves mission into our vulnerability. Verse 8 says, uh, Jesus says, Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. And I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my name and have not denied. You have kept my word and not denied my name. Um, the experience of a refugee, of somebody who has been displaced from home, who lives in a world that is not their home, is that they have little power. Um, we are vulnerable. We are weak. As much as we try to fool ourselves, we don't have a lot of power. Um, we, we make mistakes, we are wrong, we have weaknesses. There is a risk in all that we do. And so the temptation when we feel like outsiders is to say, um, in the context of, of Christianity, the, 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 the temptation is to say something like, well, I don't really have much influence here, and so, um, you know, as it relates to God, like, of course, I believe in God, but I'm not going to be able to accomplish much in terms of ministry in this place. And Jesus says, uh, that is not the case at all. I know you have but little power, but I've put before you an open door that no one can shut. What does that mean? Well, when he talks about an open door... I think it means two things. Um, I've placed before you an open door. We're going to see, uh, we're going to take a break from Revelation after we finish chapter 3 next week, but we're going to come back to it in the summer. We're going to see in chapter 4 and 5 that the next thing John sees is an open door where God is, God is uh, Jesus is coming to his people and saying, I have opened the door into the kingdom of God and you are welcome here. I know you have little power, but you have entered my kingdom. So there's hope for you. But the second thing that this means when he talks about an open door is it's, it's talking about opportunity. Um, whenever the New Testament talks about an open door, it's always a, a reference to an open door uh, for ministry. In Colossians 4, chapter 3, Paul, the Apostle Paul says, Pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. And what he's saying is that it would be easy as an exile in this world to become myopic and self-absorbed and we're so consumed with our day-to-day -day comforts and existence that we don't have the time or bandwidth or energy or resources to think about what God might want to be doing, not just in us, but through us for the sake of our 
neighbors, our community, uh, to think only of your own comfort and survival. And yet if we've glimpsed the vision of what God is going to do in our world, then our vulnerability actually becomes central to our mission. Our vulnerability becomes central to our mission in this world. It becomes a door, an open door of opportunity to be agents of God's redemption in this world. And I gotta say that this is so foreign to us um, as American Christians that we need to start paying attention to the global church because we've got a lot to learn and we don't understand what it would look like to do ministry in a vulnerability instead of um, strength. And so we mourn like the waning cultural influence of Christianity in our culture instead of learning from our brothers and sisters around the world who are doing incredible things even as they are, or even because they are being persecuted. The church in China, I've mentioned this several times, is doing this literally right now. Um, uh, the church, in, in particularly in Chengdu, China, has been persecuted since early December um, by the police, by the, uh, the government. And yet, um, what, what they keep saying is, um, I mean, they're, they're, they, they give reports about what is happening, who's been arrested this week. Um, we haven't seen our pastor since December. But then they also have been praising God for the persecution because on every street in Chengdu, people are talking about Jesus. And it's clear that nobody's following Jesus in China because of the influence it brings them, you know, the opportunities for comfort and success. And so the name of Jesus is being lifted high, not despite, but because Christians are being persecuted there. A couple years ago on Palm Sunday, uh, churches in Cairo were bombed and um, dozens of people, uh, Christians, were killed in worship. And not a couple months later, after they had time to think about it, not a couple weeks later, but two days later, Christians in Cairo stood up two days later and said, uh, we love you, we forgive you, and we want you to know about Jesus. And we need to learn from our brothers and sisters, um, you can go on Facebook or other social media outlets and follow Early Rain Covenant Church and hear weekly stories about uh, the way that your brothers and sisters in China um, are experiencing uh, the faithfulness of Jesus and the way that the gospel is being proclaimed in these places because they are vulnerable and being persecuted. I just saw this this morning. Uh, an acquaintance of mine, David Cassidy's book is coming out in a couple of weeks, and somebody had posted this quote from his book. He said, uh, The truth is that our suffering and service make the gospel believable and beautiful in a world that is in the deranged pursuit of pleasure and power. The pain of the saints has always done more to open doors for the gospel than any amount of strength and success ever has. So what does that mean? What it means is you don't need to worry about how you're going to tell your friends, neighbors, coworkers, family members about Jesus. I mean, you don't need to go through classes where you learn how to, you know, explain, defend. I mean, you can do that. It's not a bad thing, but you don't need to worry about it. What you do need to do is hold on and follow Jesus faithfully. 
and then be prepared to answer the questions that will inevitably come. Stop running to comfort, stop uh, defending yourself, and then get ready to answer people's questions when they come. So let me finish with this. How is it possible to live a life like that, a life compelled by this vision where we trust in Jesus for our vindication and we embrace the vulnerability that comes through, uh, the mission that comes through vulnerability? Well, the key to this is in verse 7. The way that Jesus identifies himself um, to the church in Philadelphia. The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. <clears throat> this is a reference to Isaiah chapter 22 where I think 600 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah um, prophesied, preached a sermon, not knowing exactly what he was talking about, but looking forward to the day when the Messiah would come and he would make everything right and what he said would happen and he would have the sway and resources to rule. Um where he would, um, or what, what that king said would actually happen. And so 600 years later, Jesus is born, and, uh, and we know now who, who that king is, who that Davidic king is, the one who holds the key uh, of David, and yet we still live in the time before uh, his reign and his rule is, is fully known and is fully, uh, is fully extended to every corner uh, of, of the earth. And so um, we now live in, uh, in this place when we know who Isaiah was talking about, but we haven't seen, we haven't experienced this reality that, that he predicted, that he foresaw, uh, that Jesus, who has the key of David, opens and no one shuts, who shuts and no one opens, that what he says comes to pass. And so to live faithfully, all that means is going about our normal lives with confidence that Jesus is on his throne and that he knows what he's doing even when we don't know what he's doing. And even when it doesn't look like he knows what he's doing, Jesus is still on his throne. We live, um, Sam was talking about this, we live in a culture that essentially say, says all that you can touch and see and experience, that's all that there is. And in that world, it, lives no, it makes no sense to live a day longer than you have to as a refugee, as an exile as somebody who has been displaced. Because what you're experiencing is all there is, and it should be better than that. But it's not true. It's not true that what we can see and taste and touch is all that there is. Jesus is on his throne, and we can live faithfully with vision and vindication and vulnerability because there is an open door. Jesus is on the throne, and he holds the keys. He knows what he's doing. And so I'm going to finish with this story. I know I said I was going to finish, but this is the last thing I'm going to say. Um, because uh, my our friends, uh, Mark and Melissa Peach, are here with us. Our, uh, Ashley, my dear friends. And Mark is the uh, pastor of a, uh, a church in downtown Salt Lake City, City Press. And um, Mark shared this story with, uh, with some of us last week. And it was just too perfect to not share this with you. <laughs> Um, Mark told the story about 
uh, a couple who was from Nashville and were members of, a, of, an, of one of our sister churches in Nashville um, who came to Salt Lake City because they're on a ski trip. And so they got an Uber from the, hotel, uh, from the airport to their hotel downtown and um, talked with their Uber driver and he let them off. And then a couple days later, because their hotel was just a few blocks from City Press, where Mark is the pastor on Sunday morning, they walked down and went into worship at, uh, at City Press. And as they walked in, they were surprised to see that their Uber driver was in church there, because their Uber driver uh, is a Pakistani man who has been with his family, uh, resettled in Salt Lake City because they are seeking asylum from religious persecution. And it just so happens that that Sunday, uh, City Press was praying for the Yusuf family um, and their asylum process um, because they had interviews coming and legal fees that cost thousands of dollars uh, that they did not have the resources to, um, to pay for. And so um, family reconnects with their Uber driver and goes about their ski trip, and a couple days later, Mark gets an email from this family back home in Nashville saying, how do we help pay the legal fees of this family? And apparently, um, the Yusuf family has their upcoming interview on April 2nd, and a large percentage of the legal fees have been paid for through the faithful people who just thought they were going on a ski trip. The God who is behind everything provides for the needs of his other children who have been displaced from Pakistan and somehow find themselves in the Salt Lake City of all places. And the point is simply this. Jesus is on his throne. That behind the day-to-day -day realities of our struggles for survival and seeking comfort and happiness in this life, Jesus is on his throne. And that vision is what you need to hang on to in order to help you successfully navigate life in this world. Let's pray together. Jesus, would you help us to look to you? Would you help us uh, to hold on to you? And then would you help us to even have the boldness to follow you? God, you're not... Um, well, you're surely at work in great ways in our world, but you're also at work through just simple, ordinary, uh, the faithfulness of your people. People like us, people who want our lives to be better, would you grab a hold of us? Would you grip our hearts with a vision of who you are? And would you change us, we pray in Jesus' name.